Welcome to Fundamentals of Canadian Law. I'm Matt Shepard, and this is our first ever two-parter. There's been a lot of conversation about pipelines in Canada lately. This episode of our podcast actually bridges a recent change. Part one was recorded before the federal government announced it was going to purchase a transnational oil pipeline from Kinder Morgan. And part two was recorded after that announcement. The facts discussed in our first half aren't really changed by this purchase. In fact, it kind of streamlines the conversation. But we just wanted to make that clear off the bat. Federal priorities and trade law, provincial laws, Aboriginal and Indigenous law, it's all being discussed right now in the context of the Kinder Morgan Pipeline, soon to be the Government of Canada Pipeline. The pipeline is being championed by the federal government. It's being challenged by a number of groups. So we wanted to unpack the legal premise and some of the details of these challenges. In our first part, we'll be talking to Associate Dean Sherry Metcalf, the instructor for the Constitutional Law Module of Law 201-701, Introduction to Canadian Law. We'll be discussing the division of powers between the federal government and the provinces, and how BC can challenge the pipeline in some ways, but not in others. In our second half, we'll be joined by Hugo Chaquette, the course designer and instructor for Law 202-702, Aboriginal Law. We'll be talking about the pipeline from an Indigenous and Aboriginal law perspective, the rights of various Aboriginal groups to mount challenges, and what the legal structures around those challenges are. This podcast is brought to you by the Queen's Certificate in Law, the only online certificate in law offered by a law faculty in Canada. You can find out more at takelaw.ca. So Kinder Morgan is running a pipeline across Canada, carrying bitumen. Uh, and BC essentially has some legislation on deck which is going to prevent that, theoretically. So, yeah, so the, the BC is actually, they're bringing this uh, reference case to their uh, own uh, provincial court of appeal to see whether or not they can impose certain kinds of environmental restrictions. And it's the, so what makes it tricky constitutionally is the possibility that these environmental controls could actually mean that you could stop uh, transportation of bitumen through BC unless you meet the criteria that they've set environmentally, right? So that's the thing that makes it seem like it could hold up the pipeline project. Right. And, and that's illustrative of kind of the division of federal and provincial power in that the power, uh, the, the province doesn't have the power to basically just kind of forbid something outright, but it has the power to regulate things as long as those are regulations that are pertinent to power that the province itself holds. I don't know if I'm saying that very clearly, but you see what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, so powers are divided between the federal and provincial governments and the ability to regulate something like the Kinder Morgan pipeline as a there, there's a federal power to do that for things like federal, they're called federal undertakings, right? So something like a federal transportation network that's intended to allow shipment of goods to international markets. Um, you know, that is the kind of thing that we recognize the federal government's got the power to regulate because it's important for the national interest. And, you know, there's kind of a long history there. So railways are another good example of this kind of uh, federal undertaking. And, and even if the 
the undertaking in question is for a private enterprise. It's still a federal undertaking that the federal government legislates. Right. So it's the it's the uh, even if there's a a company that's involved, um, it's the power to regulate that federally that really is an issue. Right? Is it the federal government that actually gets to set the constraints that that company's going to have to follow? Or, you know, what role is there for provinces to set up additional constraints or, right, to, and, and so this is something that has come up, uh, in the past because provinces do have an ability to actually regulate what goes on within their borders. So they do have the ability to legitimately set up things like environmental protection statutes because we're worried about, uh, as people living in BC, what happens to the water and the air and right, uh, the environmental conditions in BC. So where it gets tricky is where we try to figure out, well, what's the impact on this federal kind of enterprise from the BC legislation? Right? And it's totally fair for BC to have legislation, and it can even have an effect on federal undertakings. But what the courts have said in the past is, well, it can't go so far as to sort of impair or fundamentally interfere with the federal government's ability to actually regulate these things. So there's some kind of a boundary in there um, between what the provinces can do and how they can regulate things within the province and when they're sort of going to go too far and essentially interfere with or stop or prevent these federal undertakings from being able to operate. So BC has the power to have its own, as you said, it has the power to have its own environmental regulation. So they can say, hey, whoa, uh, we will only let people take these environmentally hazardous things through BC if they have the appropriate permits. And that's a, that's a measure of control they can exert over this pipeline. Um, so that's how they, that's how they can do it constitutionally. But when people are deciding whether or not this is legitimate, whether or not it goes too far, do they, is it, do they take motive into account? So when, so, you know, the people that will be trying to decide whether it goes too far or not, it's essentially the courts where they're going to bring this and ask judges to review it in light of all the previous cases, right? So what they'll really be trying to do is they'll be looking at the legislation and, where motive sometimes can come in is through things like the legislative history and, um, you know, looking at the legislation itself. So they'll be trying to figure out, well, is this something that in pith and substance really is a genuine regulatory program that fits within BC's uh, jurisdiction, right? So, you know, one possibility could be, well, actually, the real point here is to try and essentially stop interprovincial trade. If that right. was really the pith and substance of what the scheme was they were going to enact, that's not a power that the province has. So, um, you know, it could be related in that sense. But the court will look beyond just sort of, you know, uh, headlines in the newspaper. So they'll look at all kinds of uh, components. So they'll look at the legislation itself and they'll right. look at it as part of the larger scheme. And I mean, I, I guess because the question in my head when I hear about this, and this may not be a fair question, is... Is this being done out of a legitimate concern for the environment or is this, hey, we've got a thing here that'll let us stop this pipeline. So let's use this thing and the environment's a bit of a fig leaf that lets them do the one thing they can do. Yeah. I mean, so I think, uh, you know, in this case, I think that BC 
part of the reason they possibly want to stop the pipeline is because they have legitimate environmental right. concerns, right? So they're, you know, they're related things. And, you know, if you look at the proposed, uh, you know, legislation that they've referred to the court, it does really focus on things like the risk of a spill and possible harm to the environment. And, you know, they talk about implementing the polluter pays principle. So they want to have assurances that, Whoever is going to be in possession of this diluted bitumen is actually going to have the resources to deal with any spills and that they've got a plan and all these kinds of things, right? So it's not it's it's not on its face a fig leaf. Yeah, it's no, legitimate. no, no. I think that there are you know there are genuine concerns about it, right? And so part of the constitutional tug of war here is well, at what point do those local concerns um, do they ever allow a province to sort of trump? the interest in an interprovincial or a national um, priority. Right. Right. So, you know, the federal power allows the federal government to essentially declare something to be a federal undertaking or to regulate something in the interest of trade. And uh, like I say, so there is sort of this historic power to, in narrow ways, right? I mean, it doesn't allow the, certainly it restricts the federal government but it does allow them to uh, regulate these kinds of enterprises in a way that can mean provinces don't get to say no. Right. Right. And so that's why this case is actually, a, you know, it's like I say, it's a little bit of a difficult tug of war because I think British Columbia views itself as having legitimate reasons for concern when it comes to having the pipeline traverse its territory. But when the courts look at this too, it's not it's not just a pipeline and it's not just an environmental concern. It's a precedent for all provinces and the federal government. That's right, right? So it is um it is a constitutional precedent that looks at, well, what is the federal power to actually regulate in the national interest, right? And given that we've recognized that in the past, um, you know, historically um, provincial laws are not able to be applicable constitutionally if the effect there would be to really impair the federal regulatory power. Right. So that suggests that British Columbia, even though they have some legitimate provincial interests, if they try to use them or try to regulate in a way that would actually allow them to stop the pipeline from being effective, you know, by essentially being able to say, well, you can't ship unless you comply with our regulatory standards, that could really be potentially problematic in terms of precedent and the ability of the federal government to actually regulate important things that are, you know, recognized as national needs and national priorities. So a court decision may not be entirely based on just this one instance. It'll be based on what this instance means moving forward. Yeah, generally, generally speaking, that's usually how court cases are decided. Right. You hope that's what it's going to yes. look like. Yeah, that's literally yeah. what precedent means, <laughs> that's and literally that's the what precedent foundation means. of exactly. our system of justice. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then precedent is very important in constitutional cases as well. Right. So. I, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is even if the decision doesn't go BC's way, it doesn't necessarily mean there isn't a commitment to environmental values. Oh on, no. On the courts, it's it's about yeah. this much broader issue. And it may be that. Um, you know, that there's certain things that they can do um, within their own legitimate uh, regulatory power without reaching the stage of actually impairing the federal uh, right. pipeline operations, right? I, I feel like this tension must be fairly constant in Canada, too, this federal-provincial 
issue that we're unpacking a bit here because it's just come to such a sharp point. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's um, the balance between provincial power and federal power has come up lots of times uh, in the past. Um, and, you know, the actually the recent Como case, right? So right. this is the one about moving goods interprovincially that talked about, um, you know, whether or not you could bring beer across the... yeah provincial boundary. I mean, in some ways, that's another case where this sort of federal versus provincial autonomy is at issue. Right, right because federally, you can transport goods from province federally, to province, but province is the right to legislate. Well, you own. know, the, the federal government is the government that's actually got the power to regulate interprovincial trade. Right. So provinces can't enact laws that directly aim at regulating the flow of goods across provinces. So that's why BC can't, en- they can't enact an environmental law that's really about trying to prevent movement of goods across borders. Right? right. If it's really about that and not about its own domestic environmental stuff, it can't do that. But they can legitimately say we have environmental exactly. concerns. Exactly. But they can legitimately, and there can even be sort of an incidental or secondary effect. Right. So that's where you get into these, right? And that's essentially what the court found in the Como case is that there was sort of a permissible secondary effect of trying to regulate the um, sort of control over the liquor supply within the province that had an effect on whether or not you could bring goods in, but it wasn't directly about trying to control that trade as its main focus. I, I don't know if this is an answerable question, but will the Como decision have a direct bearing on any BC decision, do you think? Um, I mean, the Como decision is really, it's more directly about the interpretation of Section 121, which is about sort of a, it's all kind of a common market clause. And the BC decision, I think, will more likely be about um, the federal power to regulate federal undertakings uh, versus provincial power to regulate uh, internally within their own division of powers. So I think it's not directly applicable, but some of the... Um, themes around recognizing provincial autonomy and leaving enough space for provinces to have legitimate ability to regulate things that are of concern in the province. I think that sentiment will probably be relevant to the to the Kinder Morgan reference. Right. Well, I, I feel like I understand so much more now. Thank you, Sherry. Good. Great. Thanks, Matt. So, Hugo, I thought maybe in the context of the pipeline, we could just talk about what are some of the Aboriginal law issues just surrounding the whole situation, the whole thing. Right. And and it's interesting because uh, these issues sort of go to the heart of Aboriginal law, um, which, as we sort of discussed in a previous uh, podcast, is the law of the Canadian state, which applies to Aboriginal peoples. And the, the lawsuits that have been brought by some of the First Nations in this particular instance argue that the, they were, the, the First Nations were not properly consulted. Um, so it's important to understand where this duty to consult on behalf of the, of the federal government and provincial governments comes from um, and why it's, it's such an important uh, right for the First Nations, but also a duty on the, on the crown. Um, 
And the other thing I want to say, though, just from the outset, is it's also important to remember that the, that there's, uh, you know, there's several First Nations who are, who are supporting the project. Um, there's actually 43 uh, First Nations that have actually signed deals with previously with Kinder Morgan that are now going to have to decide what the impact of the, um, the federal government's purchasing the pipeline is going to be. Um, so it's not it's not the case that this is universally opposed by uh, First Nations groups. And I think it's important to, to remember that, um, even though there are several groups, seven right. in fact, that are actually opposing it. So in terms of the duty to consult, um, the main thing is to sort of understand how Aboriginal rights really function in our law. Um, and I think to understand that, you have to sort of ask a very strange question, um, which is, you know, the, the, the question behind all of Aboriginal law is what rights do people have in the territories that they have inhabited for millennia? Um, and that seems like a very odd question, and that's because it is. <laughs> um, but the bottom line is that, you know, that's what Aboriginal law, which is part of Canadian law, tries to figure out, is what rights do people have uh, on their traditional territories that they've lived on for, for many millennia? And what's important to understand about that is that um, when the British crown, uh, in this case, claimed sovereignty over the land. So once we had some discovery and so-called discovery and settlement, um, the, the British crown at one point claimed sovereignty over all of what is now Canada, different time periods, of course. Um, what happens at that magical moment in Canadian law is that the not only does the crown gain sovereignty, um, but it also gains the underlying title to all of that land. Right. And I think you may have actually explored this in another podcast, that the crown actually technically owns all the land in, in Canada, and that's the common way we do it in the common law system. Yeah, we, we talked about that with Dean Flanagan that's uh, right. a few weeks ago, that the fact that I own a house doesn't actually mean I own the property. I have rights to the property. That's right. And the problem when it comes to Indigenous peoples is that they actually had were here first, obviously, and they had you know their own laws, their own ways of organizing property rights um, before all this happened. And for many of them, you know, they didn't see a European or a British settler until many, many years after this this supposed um, assertion of sovereignty. But nonetheless, that is the way in which Canadian law views it: is that the crown has underlying title to all of the land in Canada. And so where does that leave the Indigenous peoples who have lived on these on their traditional territories for, for so many years? Well, it leaves them in a position of having to prove that they have rights to those territories. Right. Uh, and so whether it's what we call Aboriginal title, which is a property right, um, very similar to the highest form of, of property ownership in the common law system, which is fee simple. It has some differences from fee simple, but it's very close to it. Or Abor Aboriginal usage rights, such as hunting, fishing, other kinds of rights. These all have to be proven in court. Um, the, the, no Indigenous people ha can assume that they have these rights, um, or at least they won't be recognized in Canadian law until they've been proven in court, um, which is a very strange thing if you think about it, uh, that we we require people who have d lived a particular way and done these things for, for again, for millennia. Um, we're now saying, well, we'll recognize your right to do so, but only if you prove it in court. Right. Um, and so what happens is, it takes a long time and a lot of resources to do that. So the famous one of the famous cases that proved Aboriginal title was the Chilcotin case, um, which uh, the Supreme Court decision on that came through in 2014. And just to give you an example, the, in that particular case, there were 339 days of trial, uh, which lasted over five years. So you can imagine the number of resources that are expanded on um, proving uh, these claims, right? So where does this bring in the duty to consult? Well, the question then becomes, well, until these claims are proven, they are not really fully recognized legal claims as far as the governments are concerned. 
So does that mean the government can do anything it wants uh, and, and just run roughshod over all of these claims? And that question came up specifically in a case called Hyde Nation in 2004. Um, and the judgment, which was written by Chief Justice McLaughlin at the time, um, clearly said, no, that, that can't be the way it is, largely because of this thing we call the honor of the crown. And so right. the crown is deemed to be honorable. Uh, it's deemed to not do things uh, you know, in a way that is dishonorable. And clearly it would not be honorable for the crown to simply ignore these very strong claims in many cases that are made to these traditional territories and say, well, we, we, you know, we know you're making a claim here, but we're not going to bother with that because you haven't proven anything in court yet, so we're just going to do whatever we want anyway. So what then is the situation? Well, then what we have is a duty to consult, on the, which is placed on the Crown. And the Crown, in this case, has been clarified, means both the provincial and federal governments, depending on what the situation is. Most public lands uh, in the province will be owned by the provincial Crown. So in that case, it would be partly the provincial government would have um, a duty. But also we know that the federal government has a specific uh, mandate through the Constitution Act 1867 to, um, to look after you know, what was termed then Indians and lands reserved for Indians, which includes any, we, we know now includes all Indigenous peoples in Canada, so all Aboriginal peoples. Um, and so both levels of Crown might have a duty to consult. And the duty to consult, um, the, the question then becomes, well, what does that mean? <laughs> right. Uh, and we're not quite sure what it means, but it means different things in different contexts, right? So the court was very clear in Haida Nation and in subsequent um, case law that there's a spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, you would have a situation where uh, an Indigenous group has a claim, but it's not particularly strong for whatever reason. Maybe there's conflicting claims. Maybe another group has uh, a claim to the same area. Um, maybe this group hasn't occupied that area for a long time, and that's a known fact. Um, w- for whatever reason, the claim isn't very strong. And so, and at that point, then you would have a lower duty than you would, for example, if, so in the Haida case, for example, the Haida have inhabited the islands that used to be known as the Queen Charlotte Islands. Um, they're now called, called Haida Gwaii. And they've lived there, you know, without any opposing or conflicting claim for, for again, for millennia, right? So there's really no, uh, it's a very strong claim that they have to that right. area. And so in that particular case, then it would require a much higher level of consultation and possibly accommodation of their interests. Um, the other uh, factor on the sliding scale is the government, uh, pr- the proposed action that would interfere with the rights. So, you know, at one end of the spectrum, you'd have something that's very going to have a very minor impact on the rights, um, and that would require less consultation. But on the other end, you might have something, uh, you know, for example, in the Haida Nation case, you had a permit to clear cut some areas of, of the forest there. So that would obviously have big, a great impact on the rights involved or the rights claimed at least. And so that would then result in a higher level of a consultation needed. And so the, the key for in a lot of the cases that have been coming through is whether what level of consultation is required and, and how do we determine whether it's been adequate or not. The other important element is that, and this is sort of tricky again, but the duty is always on the crown. So it's always the crown that has the duty to consult. Nobody else has a duty to consult. But while the ultimate responsibility is always with the crown, the duty itself can actually be delegated for procedural purposes, which means that, in other words, it's other parties can engage in negotiations that will fulfill the duty. Uh, it doesn't ha- mean that the government has to be at the table at all times. So the crown could appoint an arbitrator. That's say. right. It okay. could, or it could uh, even a third party could be, could be part of the negotiation, uh, as has been the case in the past. And as was the case here with Kinder Morgan being part of the negotiations, uh, the Crown doesn't have to be itself at the table, but ultimately 
if there is inadequate consultation, then it is the Crown's duty. So the Crown will have to answer for that. So that, that raises a couple of questions. And the, the first one was um, 72 hours ago, I would have been asking you, so how does that apply to a private company like Kinder Morgan that's, that's establishing a pipeline? Now, the federal government's kind of taking that question off the table that's by right. saying they're going to buy the whole thing outright. Um, but in, had they not done that, would it be would would the federal government be just sort of saying okay Kinder Morgan we authorize you to carry out these consultations? Yeah, in a way. I mean, it it, it's, it doesn't even have to be formal. It can just be assumed that Kinder Morgan will be negotiating the the ultimate best outcome. Of course, is agreement, right? So is where you obtain uh, the consent of the group involved to the activity that you're proposing. And in that case, of course, there won't be any review of whether the duty to consult was met. Um, where it becomes an issue is where you have that third party, for example, Kinder Morgan, engaging in negotiations, and then there's a question as to the adequacy of that consultation. Um, because again, the duty remains with the Crown. So ultimately, it's the Crown that has to answer for that right. uh, and, and has to you know, ultimately ensure that, that the consultation happens and happens in an adequate manner. Um, for example, in this case as well, you know, one of the questions that came up in a case that was released um, late last year, which was known as Clyde River, um, and a companion case uh, involving the Enbridge pipeline, was whether the process of the National Energy Board, so the hearings that the, the National Energy Board conducts into um, before they can grant a permit for the pipeline, whether those were sufficient to, uh, to involve uh, adequate consultation of First Nations groups. And the courts have said yes, provided there is a meaningful... Um, opportunity for the Aboriginal group involved to present their point of view um, and the, you know the, the concept the process there is adequate that will satisfy the, the the duty to consult so it's it's you know it can be a regulatory agency such as the NEB which is involved in this case um, which is actually carrying out the consultation even though the duty remains on the crown at all times right and this duty to consult uh, obviously it's it's incumbent on the crown but that has to be done with each community individually. That's right, yes. Uh, off the top, you mentioned that there's a large number of Indigenous communities that are, that are on board. Yep. They've been, they've been consulted and they've, they've reached a point of agreement, but there's still a small group, a smaller group, but still substantial of communities that have issues. Yeah. And these are all individual sets of consultations. That's right. Now, some of them may have common issues, and so they may be dealt with together. Um, certainly, the lawsuits have been joined by other First Nations, so they, they've grouped together. Um, but it, it's important, again, to clarify that it's not just – so when we talk about First Nations and communities, it's important to, to clarify that it's not just the reserves, right? So right. reserve land is obviously encompassed within that, but it's much broader than that because it involves traditional territories. So territories which may now be either crown land or under private ownership that were traditional territories of these nations and which they have a claim to. Um, and so those are the territories that are involved. So it can actually be much wider in scope than, than just the immediate vicinity of the First Nations community itself. Um, and that's part of the complexity of this as well. So does the transition, if the government follows through with the purchase of the pipeline from Kinder Morgan, will that sort of simplify the overall portrait here? Well, it could or it could have little effect. So on one hand, it simplifies things in that it takes a player out of the issue, the third party, Kinder Morgan, uh, so that now it becomes clear that this is really between the federal government or the federal crown and you know, also still keeping in mind that the provincial crown has some responsibilities here. But uh, it, it really becomes between the crown and the, and the First Nations groups. On the other hand, the real question now is whether the process that's already been gone through with the National Energy Board and negotiations with Kinder Morgan whether it's adequate. And there's a lawsuit currently pending in the Federal Court of Appeal that is, is reviewing that. 
um, largely because of new information that came to light um, that, uh, you know, apparently, according to some sources, um, there were officials in the federal government who, at the same time as they were telling the First Nations, well, we haven't made a decision yet, we're still, you know, this is an ongoing negotiation, uh, were telling the their, their, their officials who were working on this to find a way to approve it. Uh, so it, it, it seems if, if those allegations are proven that it wasn't, uh, they weren't, the Crown wasn't negotiating in good faith, which is, you know, always sort of part of the, you know, for consultation to be adequate, it would seem that it would have to be in good faith. Right. Um, and so if that then, if the court accepts that version of, of things, then the whole process would be deemed inadequate and we, we might be back to square one in terms of consultations. And so is there, is there an outcome here where if the duty consult is not met, the pipeline can stop? Period. Yeah, if the court finds that the duty consult was not uh, adequately, you know, uh, engaged in, then absolutely the court can stop the the process because this is a constitutional right. So the duty to consult is is, is part of the uh, Section thirty five rights of Aboriginal uh, peoples of Canada, and so it, you know it would be essentially acting unconstitutionally on behalf of the Crown. So yes, it would absolutely stop things. So this is an absolutely vital part of the pipeline process. It is yes, uh, and so you know obviously at this point it, it's unclear whether the court will agree or not. There have been other challenges that have been rejected. Um, and, you know, reading the jurisprudence, so, uh, you know, looking at the Enbridge uh, case, for example, that came out, it seems like the courts are uh, willing, in many cases, to give um, uh, some leeway to regulatory agencies like the National Energy Board. Uh, and the courts tend to focus on the process more so than the results. Um, and the process would involve things like, were the groups uh, given a fair opportunity to present their views? Um, were some, you know, was there an attempt to respond to some of the concerns? Was there, um, you know, a hearing held that, that you know, per- allowed them to air their views? Those kinds of procedural things are more the heart of the duty than the actual outcome. Uh, the courts tend to shy away from, from uh, expressing their views on the particular outcome. Right. Um, but in this case, you know, there's a, there's a, a huge, uh, obviously, uh, huge importance to this. So the, I think the courts will take the time to, to really review what happened and whether there was good faith consultation here. And I imagine the issues on the on the indigenous end are fairly uniform in terms of what their concerns are. Yes, and in fact, one of the very interesting things about this is that um, the one nation that's leading the lawsuit currently in the Federal Court of Appeal, the Tsleil-Waututh um, nation, they have actually carried out their own environmental assessment uh, and assessment of the project uh, using their, the principles of their indigenous law. Uh, and they've actually put that out as as part of their report. So this is fascinating because it means that they're using their own law to assess the project and really making that the argument that this is their land. Um, and they are situated right on Bright Inlet, so they are right at the out, outlet point of the pipeline. Um, and and they're arguing that this you know should be decided in accordance with their laws just as much as with uh, Canadian law. And and so that that's really an interesting um, assertion of sovereignty, if you will, over their their territory and and um, you know to pursue that in that way is, is is something we haven't really seen a lot of before yeah no that that is that is fascinating yeah um, so i mean obviously it's a developing situation we yeah. may be discussing it again we may be yeah. short term or medium term that's right um but yeah is there is there anything else you'd like to to bring up in the context no i think uh you know again just um it's it's a very interesting issue and it goes at the heart of a lot of of you know what we look at in aboriginal law it's it's you know very fundamental issue so i think it it's a it's a fascinating issue for that reason great well thanks so much hugo thank you matt thanks to sherry metcalf and hugo chuckette if you're interested in constitutional law sherry is the instructor for our constitutional law module of law 201701 introduction to canadian law 
at takelaw.ca. We also go deep in an entire course on public and constitutional law, Law 205-705. And if Aboriginal law is of interest to you, Hugo Shekhat has designed and teaches an entire undergraduate course on the subject, Law 202-702, again at takelaw.ca. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is recorded at Queen's University, situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Our theme music is by Megan Hamilton. You can find out more about her music at meganhamiltonmusic.wordpress.com. If you like this podcast, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks for listening.